Well, good evening, guys. How's everybody doing? It looks like some of the guys thought we ended last week. Yeah, that's all right. God will deal with them. All right. Well, you got your Bibles, open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 7. You ought to have a really good crease in your Bible by now. And we're going to look at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. And just by way of reminder, this is our last week, and we will be taking off until September 7th. And so uh, we'll be coming back and be doing a series on uh, the Reformation. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be, Ted's actually going to be preaching on it um, in the pulpit for six weeks. We're going to be doing 10 weeks. And uh, we're, I'm not going to do the same thing he's doing. We're going to kind of come at it from a different, uh, two different ways. But um, I think you're going to find it a, a, a great study. It's got good historical content, but it's, it's really about doctrine because so many of the key doctrines that uh, make up who we are as evangelical Christians, Protestant Christians, came out of the Reformation. And uh, there's a lot of similarities, similarities to what we see going on even now in our culture, just some of the things happening with the gospel and how the gospel's getting diluted. And, and I feel like it's time for, almost a time for a second reformation, um, a going back to some of the deep truths that came out of the first reformation that have kind of been diluted again. So anyway, it's going to be a great study. We'll start back up in uh, September, that first week. We'll send out emails to remind you and get you to register and all that, but just be praying about it. And uh, let me pray for us tonight, and we'll wrap this thing up. Well, Father, we thank you for this privilege to come and study your word together. Thank you for uh, this facility that we can come into. It's air-conditioned, it's comfortable, and uh, Father, that we have uh, freedom in this country to study your word without any kind of threat to our lives, and that's not the case all, all around the world. Lord, I pray tonight as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount that it would not be a, a completion of something, a finish of something, but really just the beginning of us taking what we've heard, what we've learned, the words of Jesus, and continually applying to, my, to our lives over the, the days, the weeks, and the months ahead, that, Father, we truly would live the kingdom lifestyle that you've called, called us to. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes it possible, who gives us the strength. Thank you for the word that guides us and directs us, and thank you for the body of Christ that comes alongside us to encourage us. And uh, I just pray, Father, that tonight would be a, a great time for every one of us in this room, and that all that we say and do would bring glory to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just by way of quick review, um, I want to just go back and look at how we started and just kind of get your mind around everything we've covered. Because this is going to be the conclusion, and it's going to be kind of interesting how Jesus wraps up this sermon. But you remember in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount began with Jesus talking about the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And um, I kind of made the point and tried to drive home the point that I believe the best way to translate that word blessed is uh, approved, approved by God. His whole premise throughout this message, and really throughout the book of Matthew, is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. That You remember John the Baptist and then Jesus came along and they both said the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's come in the form of the king, Jesus Christ. And so he began to teach and preach and do miracles and 
proofs of the evidence of who he was, the Son of God. And these Beatitudes are basically setting the stage for what it's like to be a member of the kingdom of God, to be approved by God. And keep in mind, like we said every week, the people in the audience are Jews. Um, they're not believers in Jesus Christ. They don't even know who Jesus Christ is at this point. This is Jesus, the rabbi, the man from Galilee who's healed people and he's teaching, but they really don't know who he is. The disciples, the four disciples who are there uh, at this sermon don't really know who he is yet. He's not really revealed everything about himself, and so there's no believers in the crowd at this point. So everything he's saying is really kind of a prophetic statement towards what it's going to be like for those who are approved by God, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, and the kingdom life that he's come to, to present. So then he started talking about in verse 13 of chapter 5 about salt and earth being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we're to have an impact, we're to be change agents in this world. He talked about the law. He came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to rewrite a new law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of all that the prophets said in the Old Testament. And then he made that incredible statement that unless your righteousness is greater than, better than that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, which I think was probably one of the most shocking things the people heard. Because in their minds, the Pharisees were at the top of the ladder. They were the cream of the crop. They were the best of the best when it came to righteousness. But he makes it really clear that he's come to bring a different kind of righteousness, not man-made, self-produced righteousness, a righteousness that's lived out for others to see, to get a pat on the back, to make yourself look good, but a righteousness that comes not from you, but from outside of you. As Martin Luther said, it's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that you receive when you place your faith in Christ. And that's why he spent so much time talking about, you have heard it said. You know, you've heard it said that it's wrong to commit adultery. And he goes, but I say it's wrong to look at a woman with lust in your heart because you've already committed adultery. And his whole premise there, his whole idea was taking the misconceptions that the Pharisees and religious leaders had laid on the people. It was their interpretation or misinterpretation of the law. And Jesus is trying to straighten it out. That this is what God really expects, a change of heart. It's not all about just your lust. It's your idea that you're not pure. You're not pure. You have an anger problem. You don't know how to love because you can't love. And the only way that's going to change is if you get a new righteousness that comes from outside of you. So he talked about a lot of things. He talked about loving your enemies, chapter 6, giving, practicing your righteousness, not for others to see, but because it flows out of you. It comes from somewhere outside of you. He gave us the Lord's Prayer. He talked about fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, not here on earth, not being anxious about your life. And then last week, we talked about this idea of judgmental, judgmentalism, not judging others, not looking down your nose at others, not because they're in sin, but because you just don't like them. You don't like the way they live, and you're trying to find fault in them to make you feel better about yourself. And he says, don't do it. So he's moved all this way. And then last week, we ended with this, this passage about the narrow gate. And he's, he's left us last week 
Remember, this is all one sermon. They're all getting it in one fell swoop, and it probably took him seven to ten minutes to preach the whole thing. But he ends it with this idea that the kingdom life, and they all want the kingdom life because they're looking for a kingdom. They're looking for a king. They're looking for a Messiah. But he says this kingdom life is not going to be really popular. It's not going to be easy. And it's going to be highly restrictive. And, and again, if, you, if you're in the mindset of a Jewish individual standing on that hillside listening to say this, they already think they're in the kingdom. They, they are the kingdom in their minds. They're the chosen people of God. And he's saying, guess what? It's restrictive. Not everybody gets in. There's the narrow gate and there's the wide gate. There's the easy path and the hard path. And they're going, well, wait a minute. We're, we're already on the path. We're, we're in the kingdom. We're God's chosen people. But he comes to let them know that, no, the kingdom's something completely different than what you think. So he ends with these verses. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to what? To life. What kind of life? I think both abundant life here and now, but also eternal life to come. And those who find it are few. And once again, if you're a Jew standing on the hillside listening, listening to this rabbi speak, you are struck by that, what do you mean are few? Does he mean there's just not that many Jews compared to the rest of the world? Because they think all the Jews are getting in. See, he's bringing something new, something different, something revolutionary. And he's telling them that this way is going to be different. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Not to get saved. That's not what he's saying. But once you are saved, it's pretty hard. And if you are in Christ and you've been in Christ for very long, you would probably agree with that statement that being a Christian is not the easiest thing in the world. Being a shallow Christian an uncommitted Christian is really easy. And there's millions of people pulling that off. Being a committed, faithful, dedicated, growing, in the word Christian is difficult in this world, in this context. And I think these last verses, and I want to read them, because I think they're, they're going to set up this idea that um, other people are going to show up and they're going to preach something different than what Jesus is preaching. And he's going to talk about false prophets. He's going to even talk about false professions. People who say, I'm following Christ. And he's trying to get them to understand that there's, there's going to be in the days ahead, especially when he dies and he ascends back up into heaven, there are going to be people show up who are going to paint a different picture of the gospel. And it's still happening today. So look at verse 15, and let's just read through these remaining verses to kind of get a, a handle on where he's going with the ending of this message. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wouldn't you love to hear God say that to you? You get to heaven, he goes, I don't even know you. Get out of here. Just a thought, something to think about. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So interesting way to end this passage, this message. Um, you know, typically in a, in a sermon, you want to kind of end on a high note. Um, you you want to encourage people as they walk out the door. It doesn't sound like Jesus is that interested in encouraging. He's really trying to get them to understand the reality of the kingdom and what's about to happen in the not-too-distant future. So this idea that there are going to be those who come, who promote a different way, who try to get you to take a different path, it seems like it's the right path, it seems like it's the right way, but he's warning you, be careful. So he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, again, keep in mind when he says this, if you're sitting in the audience, you're going to think certain things. Just like we hear those words and certain, certain things come into our mind, maybe certain people, certain individuals, certain circumstances in our own life. But they're sitting there going, hmm, beware of false prophets. I wonder who he's talking about. Who are they? They may even be looking around going, I wonder if it's him. And I think they... Probably some of them may have even looked at the scribes, at the Pharisees, wondering, well, they're the leaders. I wonder if they're the false prophets. But he's saying, beware of these people. They're going to come. They're already here. They're in your midst. And false prophets in the Old Testament, in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking, and now in our day and age, false prophets are those who claim to speak for God. It's that simple. A prophet was a person who claimed to speak for God. Now, we have true prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, who were commissioned by God, chosen by God, and given the words of God to speak. But every time those guys showed up in the scene, guess what? There were false prophets who said the opposite of whatever they were saying. God's going to punish you. No, he's not. You're going to go into captivity. No, God would never do that. True prophet, false prophet. Now, which one do you think most people wanted to listen to? The false prophet, right? Because they're always saying, no, 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 you're, you're the apple of God's eye. You're, the, you're his children. He would never do that to you. And people would flock to hear these guys. And Jesus is saying, in this context, in this day, false prophets are going to come just like they've always come. And the word is pseudoprophetes in the Greek. It just literally means false prophet. And it comes from this Greek word, lying, deceitful, or false. So he's basically saying there's going to be people show up claiming to know the right way, and they're going to be liars. They're going to be false, and they're going to deceive you. 
And guys, I think this is really important in our day and age because I think false prophets are all over the place right now within the context of the church. And they're on TV, they're publishing books, they're holding seminars, and we have got to be careful. Because it's interesting that Jesus says, beware. It's a warning. These people are imposters. They're posers. They're fakers. They're dangerous. And we are not to tolerate them. We're, we're to look for them and we're to deal with them. And if nothing else, we're to give them the stiff arm. I'm not reading your crap. I'm not going to your church. I'm not attending your seminar no matter how many lives you claim have been changed, because you are not speaking truth. Now, how do we know that? Because they don't teach and preach this book. So it's dangerous, and Jesus is trying to get these people in the audience to understand that you better be careful because the kingdom way will always be mimicked by a wrong way, a different way. So it basically says, watch out. And I, the disciples picked up on this, the apostles and Paul, being an apostle, he picked up on it, and he said to Timothy, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears long to hear. That is a verse that is so apropos for today. And how does it show up? It's, it's the individual who stands up and says, God wants you to have your best life now. I'm going to throw a couple of people under the bus, okay, just, just because I like to do it, no. Because I, I, I do want to put a face to this, and I don't do this in, in, a, in a hateful way, and I'll probably get an email from somebody, but I hope you guys ha have the capacity to spot falsehood when you see it, but I'm of the opinion, I'm of the belief that a Joel Osteen is a false prophet. And he, if you listen to him, if you watch him, and I can't, because I want to reach through the tube and strangle him. Because what he says is not from this book. Now, he'll stand up at every sermon, and he has that little pithy little deal he does where he holds up his Bible, and he says, this is the Word of God, and he's got this little thing he goes through, and everybody recites it with him. And then he promptly puts it on the podium, and he never opens it again. He is a false prophet. He is preaching falsehood. He is preaching prosperity. Anybody who will stand up and say, what God wants for you is the best parking space at the mall. I want to slap. Because it's, it's, it's not only ludicrous, it's not only ridiculous, it is so anti-gospel. It's so anti what this book teaches. God does not promise you, you and I our best life now. The biggest house, the fanciest cars, the nice clothes. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the Bible can I find that God promises me happiness in this life. What he wants for me, his will for me, is what? My holiness. And we've talked about this for years in this ministry. But it's guys like that, and there are women too, women preachers and teachers who are saying basically the same things and they are speaking out and saying God told me this God gave me a new revelation a new insight a new word 
and it doesn't match this word. Anytime anybody stands up in front of you and says, God has told me, and it doesn't match this book, run from them. Because it's a lie. It's falsehood. That's why Jesus said, beware. That's why Paul tells Timothy, his young protege, beware, watch out. These people are out there. And don't become one of those people who tells people exactly what they want to hear. You want to know the reason Joel Osteen has 36, 40,000 people crowding into that arena every stinking week? It's because he tells them exactly what they want to hear. You're wonderful. God made you. God wants to bless you. You're a child of the king. All of that's true. But it always ends up with, and he wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, if he got up next Sunday and he said, I was wrong. God doesn't promise any of that to you. Matter of fact, God wants you to be holy. And God wants you to not love the things of this world, but to love the things of heaven. How long do you think that place would stay full? It would empty out in a New York minute. Because it's not what they want to hear. The gospel, the narrow way, as Jesus describes it, is narrow because not everybody's going to go through it. And they don't want to go through it. And some of the commentators say about that word narrow, it describes a very, very small gate that you can barely fit through. And the idea is that you can't take anything through with you. So you got a backpack, you're going to have to leave it behind. You're pulling your bass boat, you're going to have to leave it behind. Whatever it is you want to keep and carry it, no, you can't take it. It's a narrow gate, and few are going to go through it. But when you see anybody's ministry skyrocketing, and they're preaching and teaching, and it seems like they really aren't teaching the Bible, but their ministry is growing, do not assume they have the blessing of God. Never assume that. At least check it out. See what they say. Listen to what they're teaching. And I love this from Jeremiah. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And I've been reading through Jeremiah this last couple of months. And it says, how can you say we are wise? We have the law of the Lord. Now, this is Jeremiah speaking to the people of Judah. The people of Judah live in the southern kingdom. This is hundreds of years after the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Why? Because they were unfaithful to God. So the southern kingdom has watched their northern neighbors disobey God, disobey God, kill the prophets, not listen, not repent, and they end up in where? Captivity. Totally destroyed. Samaria fallen. Now, Jeremiah shows up along with Isaiah and others, and they're saying, hey, guess what? If you don't get your act together, this is going to happen to you. The Babylonians are coming. And, and he says, but you say, we're wise. We have the law of the Lord. We have God's law. We've been given his law. We have the temple. We have the tabernacle. We have whatever. And listen to what he says. The truth is, those who teach the law have used their writings to make it say what it doesn't really mean. Remember what Jesus said earlier in the sermon? You have heard it said. And everything he said was not what the law said. It's what the prophets or the Pharisees said it said. 
And in his day, just like it was in Jeremiah's day, you had religious leaders misinterpreting the law of God and saying, this is what it means. And God goes, no, that's not what it means. And when you have people taking this book and saying, that's not what it really says. Let me tell you what it says. And they refute over 2,000 years of orthodox teaching and preaching and interpretation. That's why if anybody comes to you and says, I got something new, I got a new interpretation, I'm going to guess you're probably wrong. I'm going to guess that you probably are not as smart as most of the theologians who have lived and died in the last 2,000 years that you think you have a new spin on this, that you have a new revelation from God. He says, your wise men will be put to shame. They will be dumbfounded and be brought to judgment since they have rejected the word of the Lord and taught something else. What wisdom do they really have? And see, what Jeremiah is telling them is, hey, all your wise teachers and preachers and prophets who think they know the meaning of God's law and have misinterpreted it, guess what? They're going to go into captivity just like everybody else. They're wrong. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're posers, and Jesus describes them as ravenous wolves. They really aren't out to watch over the sheep. They don't really care about the sheep. They see the sheep as an opportunity. And so the question you have to ask is, how, how, how do I spot these people? Because they're, they're everywhere. You go to Mardell's, you go to Lifeway, if there are any more Lifeways, and, and you look at the bookshelves, even in those Christian stores, and you will see book after book after book that border on heresy. Why are they selling them? Because they make money off of them. It's a business. And so, how do we spot them? And I love how Jesus just simply says, buy their fruits. Oh, what does that look like? What does it mean to spot somebody's fruits? Well, if it means anything, it means don't look at just the surface. Look, you got to look inside. And that's hard to do, right? I don't know Joel Osteen. Never met the man. And honestly, I don't know if Joel Osteen's a believer or not. It's not my job to judge whether he's saved. It is my job to critique what he teaches because he claims to be a believer, but he's not teaching the word of God. So how do I know? Well, I've got to look and see what are they really producing? What is their ministry producing? And Jesus boils it down to two things. He says, good fruit comes from what? A good tree. So you got to look at these men. You got to look at their lives. You got to look at their ministries and see, is there good fruit coming out of that ministry? And numbers is not what Jesus is talking about. So we got we to gotta look closely. Bad fruit comes from what? A bad tree. And Jesus makes it real clear. You can't get one from the other. So if you look at them, and some of these guys, whether it's a Benny Hinn, years ago, Robert Tilton, they're, they're surrounded by controversy. They're surrounded by innuendo and even evidence of some not only false teaching, but lifestyle that is not appropriate for somebody in their capacity. And it just always seems to surface. 
So good fruit comes from a good tree, bad fruit from a bad tree. And he says, thorn bushes don't produce grapes. So if you look at these ministries, and if you go and you look at what they teach and preach, and you dig into it, you will begin to see this is not helpful, it's hurtful. It's a thorn bush, and what do thorn bushes produce? Thorns. And thorns cut and stab and hurt and make you bleed. They're not grapes. They don't produce grapes. And thistles don't yield figs. You don't get anything of nourishment long-term from these kind of ministries. You will not get long-term nourishment from their writings, their teachings, because they're not based on what? The Word of God. They're based on the precepts of men. And that's why it's so important and why Jesus makes a point of it as he closes up his message. And the bottom line is, false prophets never speak truth. Now, they will speak partial truth. One, one of the, the, the gentlemen I really struggle with is a gentleman named Derek Prince. Uh, Derek Prince is a very flamboyant, charismatic, and it, my problem is not that he's charismatic, but that he is highly, highly deceptive because he says so much that sounds so right and so good. And seems to gel with what this book says. But then there's always this kind of like disconnect. That you go, where did that come from? And as you dig into it, you realize it didn't come from here. And so what he does is he mixes just enough truth with enough falsehood to where you're really not sure. I think he's good. I think he's right. He believes in Jesus. He believes in the Holy Spirit. But you've got to dig deeper and see, okay, what are they really teaching? And is, is, is what they teach about Jesus a hook to get you in the door? Or is Jesus the whole key? And I think if you dig deeper, you'll find out that Jesus is just kind of a, a tool that's used to get Christians in the door, and then he sells. It's a bait and switch. So they don't really speak truth. They're deceitful. They're liars. So he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. I, I think it's interesting that he uses the word diseased. Because they're flawed. They're sick. They're sick with what? They're sick with sin. Well, we're all sick with sin. But they have a particular sin that is using the gospel, the name of Jesus, for ill-gotten gain, for the wrong reason. And it's much like the Pharisees did. They didn't use the name of Jesus, but they used the name of God. They used the law of God for their own good, their own gain, their own glory, their own vanity. And that's what you see so much in these things. But here's what I, I want to ask, and I want you to ask is, he's standing on that hillside, he's speaking to Jews, there were probably some Gentiles in the audience, but it's predominantly Jews. Who is he talking about? Who, who does he have in mind? And this is really important. Because if you go later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 16, listen to this story. You know the story. Jesus has just fed the 4,000. So he's fed this multitude, and it was probably more like 15,000 because that was just the men. There were wives, there were children. So he's fed thousands of people miraculously. And it says later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. You remember that story? And you remember that they gathered up all the leftovers? 
And there were baskets of leftovers, and every disciple had some. And I always thought this story is kind of funny because they didn't, I forgot to bring the bread. God, I can't believe I forgot the bread. So Jesus says, watch out. He warns them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I love the disciples. I used to think the disciples were idiots. And then I realized I am one. Um, I'm just like the disciples. I don't always get it. And so they, he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here's their response. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. So they hear the word yeast, and they think bread. Well, he doesn't want us to eat the Pharisees' bread because that's holy bread because they're holy people. So we should have brought our own bread, but I forgot to. Well, John, you should have brought the bread. You had a whole basket. Well, so did you. Peter, why didn't you bring yours, you big mouth? And they start arguing. And Jesus knows what they're saying, so he said, you've got so little faith. It's almost like Jesus said, you guys are so clueless. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Twelve baskets full of bread? Don't you remember? This is not, I'm not talking about bread here. If I need bread, I can make bread. I can, I can manufacture bread. That bread's not our problem, and bread's not what I'm talking about. He says, do you remember the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? He's like a chapped parent. When are you going to wake up and listen to what I'm saying? So again, I say to you, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm talking about? Then, at last, they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So as Jesus stands on that mount, speaking to those Jews, what does he have in mind when he says, beware of false prophets? I think he's talking directly at the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all those religious leaders who he knew were not only false prophets then, they were going to be false prophets in the future after his death, burial, and resurrection, trying to lead people away from that narrow gate and that difficult path. In chapter 15, verse 9, he says, they, the Pharisees and the scribes, teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Doesn't that sound just like Jeremiah? They're teaching man-made ideas. That's how you spot a false prophet. It's man-made ideas, and it does not gel with this book. And most of the time, they're going to take verses out of context, and they're going to make this book say what they want it to say, and they'll say, well, it obviously said God wants to bless you, and the way he wants to bless you is he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and whole. Okay, but... You're, you're, you're lifting out of context. Let's look at the whole book. Let's look at the whole story. Let's see what he really says. They're man-made ideas. They're not God's ideas. And they are coming from diseased people who can't tell the truth. So I want to give you a contemporary example of this. And this is going to seem, and I'm not going to give you this guy's name. You wouldn't know him if, if, you, if you, anyway. But I got, a, I got an email from a guy who comes to Band of Brothers last week, and he said, hey, I've been watching this guy and reading this guy online. He's got a blog, and, 
And uh, I like him. He seems to be pretty good, but I, I'm just wondering what you think. I said, okay, uh, give me the link. So I go to his website, and I start to read. And it's really kind of interesting because he calls him himself a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, the blog that he sent me was basically him ranting against the church, the organized church. And the whole blog's purpose, and it was kind of disjointed and hard to read, but the whole purpose seemed to be that the church should not exist in the form that it exists. We should not have buildings. We should not have pastors. We should not be organized like this. And, and he just went on and on about it. Various passages pulled out of context. And here's what he said. This is one of the paragraphs. For over three years, Jesus trained the twelve, lost one, but after his death, the disciples appointed Matthias to be the twelfth. Why twelve, you say? Because twelve represents the government of God. Okay. Well, let me look at the concordance. Government of God. Where is he getting that from? Where, where in the world? And he's, he's, he's building a whole premise on that statement that for the life of me, I don't know where he's getting it from. Then he goes on. There are 12 hours that govern the day. 12 hours govern the night. 12 months in the year. And in Revelation 21, you will see the number 12 exhibited multiple times in the New Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Therefore, it's the government of God. What has that got to do with anything? And, and he goes on and on. And, and I don't know if he's a numerologist, but he, anytime you start goofing around with numbers in the Bible... I think you're walking on really dangerous territory. Some people get way whacked out about the book of Revelation. I, I like the book of Revelation. I don't understand the book of Revelation. I've taught the book of Revelation. And guys always ask me why you don't teach the book of Revelation. Mainly because the only people who want to hear the book of Revelation are people who are obsessed with the book of Revelation. And they want to know what it means. And the answer you almost always have to give is, I'm not really sure. Because even Jesus didn't really know. But if you start playing games with it and start saying, well, this is an Apache her a helicopter, and this is this, and this is this, and we don't know. And so here's this guy, you know, 12 represents the government of God. Is it taught in the Bible? No. It's not. Now, you might say, well, Ken, that's not that dangerous. It's a slippery slope that you start going down and you start saying, well, okay, how about the number Nine. I found the number nine. Well, good for you. I saw the word red in the Bible. And sometimes it stands for blood. Okay, so what are you going to conclude from that? See, it's, it's just a really dangerous place to, to play around. And there are times in the Scriptures where a number means a certain thing. And it's very clear or, or imagery is used to convey a certain thing, but it's made clear in the Scriptures, and you don't have to manufacture it or make it up. I, I think a simple test is, if you read something in a book, or you hear a message, did Jesus Himself or the disciples, the apostles, ever teach that same thing? No? Okay, then where are you getting it from? See, in the, you know, studying the... the uh, Reformation, what, what's really interesting in studying Reformation is we always think you had the Catholics and then you got the Protestants. Protestants broke away, they had a conflict, and 
you ended up with two basically branches of Christianity. Man, it couldn't be any more unlike that. Because once this whole thing started, you ended up with so many variations on a theme. You had Martin Luther, you had Zwingli, you had Melanchthon, you had all these guys leading the Protestant Reformation who couldn't agree on virtually anything. And, and so you had all these offshoots, and everybody's saying, well, if we, can, uh, if we can rebel, if we can reform, then great. We'll come up with our own ideas. And I just lost my computer. What are you laughing about? <laughs> it's just going to take me twice as long to teach this lesson, okay? So you had these, these individuals who were teaching falsehood under the guise of what? The Reformation. And it, it got really wonky really fast. And you had Anabaptists, and Anabaptists show up, and the others didn't want anything to do with them, and they start killing the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists are the ones saying, we don't believe in infant baptism. And so what are the... Ones that do, like Martin Luther and Zwingli, well, let's, if you want to be baptized again, we'll baptize you again, and they drowned them. You had all kinds of just wacky stuff going on. And so this idea is that we need to be careful. We need to be aware of what's going on in our society and what's going on within the body of Christ because it is real. It's dangerous. It was dangerous in Christ's day. It's dangerous in our day. Rise and walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out. So, how do you spot them? You spot them from their fruit. What they teach. Does it gel with Scripture? Is it accurate? Does it go along with what Jesus taught, the apostles taught? Does it gel with the teachings of Paul? And if it doesn't, you need to avoid it. You need to run from it. Because it's dangerous. And it's interesting that Jesus moves on and he's, he's been talking about what? False prophets. Beware of false prophets. And then he says, every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that'll get your attention, right? You're sitting in the crowd going, oh, wait a minute. You're going to get thrown into the fire. I think that's really Jesus saying that there is a day coming when everybody's fruit's going to get judged. And where, if you can't spot it here, there's a day coming when their fruit will definitely be spotted and Jesus Christ and God the Father will expose it. And he says, it's going to get burned up. And then you'll recognize them by their fruit. You'll see that what they taught was wrong. It was false. It was inaccurate. It was deception. And then he moves in verse, 30 to verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This, this moves into a whole new thing. This is talking about pseudo-professors. And I don't mean like seminary professors or college professors, but professors professing Christ. And this gets really close to home because you can say, well, I'm not a false prophet. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to worry about. But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that word, Lord, Lord, those two words put together is a sign of deity. That he's Lord and master. He's 
claiming deity himself. I'm God. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? See, he's moving into a whole new thing here. And he's talking about people who will claim to know Christ. And here's the, here's the reality, guys. In our church, Christ Chapel, and churches all around this city, we have people claiming to know Christ. And he's basically saying there's a day coming when they will stand before the Lord and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? We, we did these great things. And you notice he says three things. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did mighty works. How? In your name. And what's his response? I never knew you. I don't know anything about you. Yeah, but, 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 but we, did, we did this and we did this and we did this. And he goes, no, it, that, you're doing the wrong works. And it's not that those things are bad, but it's interesting that he refers to something else. He refers to, in John 6, 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes. For the, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus had a different idea of what work was. And I don't mean hard work. I think Jesus was a hard worker. But the work that he's looking for, the deeds he's looking for, is different than what they're looking for. Hey, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did incredible things. And he goes, I don't even know you. And in John 6, 28 and 29... They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So these people at the end of the age, when they all stand before Him and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? He's going to go, it doesn't really matter what you did, it's who you knew. And I don't know you because you don't know me. And if you don't know me, you don't know him, my father. This has everything to do with people who are professing faith, but who don't really know Jesus. And they're in our church. You know, as part of our church's uh, membership process, if you want to join our church, the, really the only requirement is that you are able to profess faith in Christ. And when I was on the elder board, it, it, it got really interesting at times because the elders interview these people coming in. And you'd have people, you'd say, well, tell me how you came to know Christ. Well, I was born in the church. You weren't literally born in the church, right? No, no, I, just, I was raised in the church. Well, tell me how you came to know Christ. Well, I've always known Christ. Okay. How, how did you come into a relationship with Christ? Well, I, you know, just we, you know, we, we always went to church. And you, you come at it from 18 different angles. You know, you, you're like throwing them softballs. How did you accept Christ as your Savior? Well, I don't know that I ever did. I just, he's just always, you know, he's always been there. He's, you know, I just, he's always been there for me. And I'm not saying those people aren't saved, but they, it's kind of interesting that they, they can't articulate a saving relationship with Christ, that he died on the cross for my sins, that I was a sinner and I couldn't save myself. And, and my fear is, in some of those cases, they're going to stand before the Lord someday and he's going to say, all right, who are you? Oh, Lord, Lord, you know, I grew up in the church. Great. 
Lord, Lord, I, I went to Sunday school every week. Lord, Lord, I went to Band of Brothers. Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that. I served on the mission board. I did this. I gave, I tithed. Lord, Lord. And he's going to go, I don't know you. Because you never really came to know me. It was all about your works. It was all about the stuff that you did. And when I was blogging through the Vessels of Clay, or uh, Sermon on the Mount, here's what I wrote about that idea. There have been and always will be those who claim to be followers of Christ, but who are really nothing more than false professors. Their spirituality is not what saves them. Their use of Jesus' name and regular attendance in church do not bring them approval with God. They refuse to do the will of God. What's the will of God? To believe on Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Instead, they believe that their religious fervor will save them. They put their trust in their good deeds, their prayers, their fast, their acts of generosity. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do this? They go to church. They attend Bible studies. They listen to countless sermons, but they refuse to do the one thing God has commanded that all would do if they desire to be made right with Him and gain His approval. Blessed are. Believe in His Son as their sin substitute. So, there are false professors. Now, why do I say that? I don't say that to make you doubt your salvation. Um, but I do want you to think about people you know, who you watch, who you see, who you have questions about their salvation. It could be your kids. You know, we just had kids camp last week, and we had 200 plus kids on both campuses give their, their lives to Christ. I love kids camp. I think that's wonderful. But here's the reality. Some of those kids may not have really understood what they did. And they may be your kids. And what I don't want you to do is go, Whew, I can check that one off. Cindy's going to heaven. Because here's what I know, having six kids who are now all, now all grown. All of my kids came to faith early on in life. And at least a couple of them didn't really pull off salvation very well. Didn't show up in their adult life, their teen life. And we had to go back and really revisit, do you really know Jesus Christ? Do you really understand salvation? And again, I'm not trying to get you to doubt your kid's salvation. I just think Jesus is trying to warn us and warn them that it's going to be real easy to believe falsely and just mouth the words. So I think we got to be really careful. And then the last thing he talks about is in verses 24 and 25. And, and this is, we all know this imagery, and, and if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you probably, you know, I'm old enough that we used flannel graph. You know, remember flannel graph where you had a little thing, you stick it on the flannel and hope the picture hangs up there. We always had a story that had something to do with the two houses, one built on sand, one built on rock. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall. And he compares it to what? He compares it to a house that's built on sand that's not going to last when the storms come. What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about those who are approved by God, who become children of God, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, will last till the end. And I think it's really interesting that he says the rock is what? His word. When I was growing up, there was a little chorus, this rock is Jesus. You know, Jesus is the rock. And, and, and I think that's true. 
But in this case, he's not referring to himself as the rock. He's saying, my words are the rock. And what that ought to tell you and I is that this book has got to be the rock on which you stand. See, if you say, I know Jesus as my Savior, He's my rock, and you never open this book, you will be unstable. It's not that Jesus has a problem. It's that Jesus said, I want you to live according to my word. He told the disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And then He said, teaching them everything I have commanded you. See, we've got to be built on the rock. The rock is the Word of God. It's not just the name of Jesus. Jesus is important. He's the key. But Jesus wants to bolster and to grow in our salvation by staying in this book. And I think this is probably the most important thing we can get as we close up this series is to realize that if you are not a man of the book, you are unstable. Your life is unstable. Your decision-making is, is unstable. Your marriage is unstable. It may look great. It may sound great. But it is unstable because you don't have the foundation you need. And Jesus wants you to have a firm foundation. Because if you don't do according to His words, He says you will be like a man, a foolish man who built his house on what? The shifting sand of society and the changing opinions of culture. And when the storms come, and I think he means the storms of life, and I think he also means the judgment to come, you will not stand, you will fall. And he says, great will be that fall. So it's not enough just to acknowledge Jesus. you got to believe in him. It's not enough to do good things for Jesus. you got to put your weight on what he has done for you, belief in Jesus Christ. And it ends up, he says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I think that's an interesting way for Jesus to, this, to be wrapped up by Matthew, that he notices that the people sense something different about Jesus. His words have power. His words have authority. He knows what he's saying. He is speaking truth. And what they've been hearing is a really bad version of the truth. And for once in their lives, they're hearing the real truth from God himself. But I think what jumps out at me is it says they were amazed, astonished at his words. And we can read these three chapters and become astonished at the words of Jesus because they're powerful. And there are people who love the Sermon on the Mount. They just don't try to live it. But... My question for you is, are you amazed at his words? Or are you amazed at the offer? Because all of this is going to lead up to the offer of salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone, according to grace alone. And for many of us in the room who've been in faith for very long, who've known Christ for very long, that gift, that offer no longer carries the weight. We're no longer astonished by it. And my hope, my prayer is that you will once again be astonished by the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh, came to live in this earth, died on a cross for your sins, took on your sins, gave you his righteousness. You now stand as righteous before God the Father. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you will ever do to make him love you more. You have a place reserved for you for eternity. And if that does not astonish you, I don't think you really know Christ. Or at least you don't really value Christ. And I think it's exactly what he meant when he said, it's like casting your pearls before swine. 
This great gift that you've been given by God, you treat as if it's worthless. You don't value it. You don't appreciate it. You don't thank Him regularly for it. You ought to get up every morning and thank God, not just that you take breath, but that you are right with God. And no matter what you do that day, you're right with God. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of what He did. I'll close with this. There were those in the crowd that day who, who would hear Jesus' words and ignore them. Just walk away. Well, that was interesting. I thought he was going to do a couple of healings. Years later, after his crucifixion, the word of his miraculous resurrection and ascension would spread. And his offer of salvation would be heard throughout all Judea. But most would still refuse to accept it. And their lives would be like a house built on sand, unstable, insecure, completely susceptible to the storms of life and unavoidably destined for a great fall. If you get nothing else out of this series, anything else out of this lesson tonight, guys, um, we have a firm foundation. Yes, it's Jesus Christ, our Lord. But if you try to live the Christian life without this, you will fall. You will fail. I'm not telling you you're going to lose your salvation, but you will not enjoy the abundant life. You will not enjoy peace, contentment, joy, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction. That's why he said, don't, don't put your treasure here on earth. Don't suck up all the stuff the world offers because it will never deliver. Put your hope and trust in him. But if you're not in this book, and I want to challenge you, I get guys all the time that come up to me when we end a series like this, and they'll say, what am I going to do for the next month and a half? And I want to take this book, and I want to go right upside their head. And I want to say, read your Bible. Well, I don't know how. You read Sports Illustrated. No, I just look at the pictures. Read this book. Well, I don't get anything out of it. Then keep reading this book because if you have the Holy Spirit within you and you're a believer and you do, He will help you understand this book. But you will have to muddle through some difficulty at times, not understanding. But I guarantee if you read it regularly, faithfully, He will speak to you. So over the next month and a half, however long it is until September 7th, my challenge to you is build your life on this every day. Oh, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. And hold each other accountable. The next time you see each other, go, hey, have you read the book today? Nah. Don't lie. Don't be a false prophet. And most certainly, guys, don't be a false professor. If you are not sure of your salvation, I didn't mean to cause anybody to be unsure of their salvation, but if you're not sure, I would love to talk to you because I want you to be sure. I want you to know. So let me pray for you. And because my computer doesn't work, I can't give you your questions, but that doesn't mean you can leave. <laughs> that means you're going to have to talk about what you heard and you can use your notes. Your adults act like it. But let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their faithfulness to come week after week. And Lord, I pray that you would take this lesson tonight and you would make it burn home in each one of our lives, Father, that we are surrounded by false prophets. 
And sometimes we get sucked in and we take the bait and it sounds so good and it sounds so tempting and, and yet, Father, it's falsehood. It's a lie. And it's, we get sucked in because we don't know the truth the way we need to know the truth. And some of our wives are listening to things and reading things that are inappropriate. And, and I don't mean sexually inappropriate. They're religiously, spiritually inappropriate. And we need discernment. I pray, Father, for any guy in the room who might be a false professor who thinks he's a believer, but he's really not. He grew up in the church and maybe he was catechized or dipped or dunked or whatever. And he doesn't know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. I pray that that would change tonight. That no one would walk out of this room without knowing Jesus Christ and knowing what it means to have your sins completely forgiven and your future made secure. And then finally, Father, we want to build our lives on the solid rock of your word. The word that you've given us that is faithful and true and trustworthy and life-changing and it cuts to the core and it transforms us into the men that we're supposed to be. But if we're not in it, it does us no good. It's like having medicine and leaving it in the bottle. So, Father, I pray that over the next months that every guy in this room would do the best to his ability to get in the Word every day, even if it's just for 10 minutes, and watch what you do. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.